So two weeks ago, Travis, uh, as part of his talk, mentioned the tabernacle of David and the role that that has played in dwelling. And um, he asked me if I would be willing to share some of the things about that specifically with you guys. And um, <laughs> as is just about always the case, uh, when something comes up about me talking, I feel like I have no idea what to say. And um, this is not any different, but the bottom line is the Lord has given me some things that I feel like I'm supposed to share with you guys. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, so I just want to acknowledge a couple of things right up front. First of all, you're going to hear a lot of scripture here tonight. That's I just believe that's what I'm supposed to do as part of the, sort of the background for um, the tabernacle of David and, and the Ark of the Covenant and all these kinds of things. Um, so having said that, for me, probably one of my nightmares is having to pronounce all these Old Testament names. and So I make a disclaimer right up front that they're probably not right, okay, but you're going to get what I got. And it's like the Wilmore accent. This, this is, there you go. Thank you. Lord knows. And um, then, then also I did want to tell you that in, in doing the research for this, there were a couple of sources that I used that I think could be helpful if you are interested in this kind of thing. One of them is a series of teachings, I guess you would call them, by Ray Hughes. I don't know if you're familiar with Ray Hughes or not, but he is a, um, he's a down-home um, country boy, prophet, really good guy, and one of his exp- areas of expertise is the Tabernacle of David. He has this series of teachings that's called The Tabernacle of David Then and Now. Um, and so a, a good bit of what I'm going to be sharing with you was are things that are included in this. Uh, it was actually, it's old enough it was a CD set. I'm sure that you can get it online now. But uh, so that was one thing. Uh, just incredible depth of information. He is a musician as well. And um, just the things that he has been able to dig out in, in his relationship to the Tabernacle of David is amazing. And then the other one, uh, the other person, if you will, is a gentleman by the name of Mark Kaufman. I don't know him. All I know is that about five years ago when I was doing some research in the Tabernacle of David, his name popped up, and as I was reading his article about this, it just really struck home to me. So part of what I'm going to be sharing with you is based on his work, and I and the Lord has shown me some things, and so this is just sort of a big conglomeration, if you will, of all of those things. So last night when I went to bed, I thought, okay, um, I think I'm done. We're ready to go. Until I woke up this morning at 5 o'clock, and no, <laughs> not done. And so the Lord had me do a couple of other things. In this first section is really part of that. Um, Because I felt like I was supposed to go back and talk for just a few moments about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The Tabernacle of David is literally a tent that he built. And one of the purposes of that tent was to house, house the Ark of the Covenant. And so I felt like the Lord was wanting me just to go back and and refresh our memories as to sort of the history and some of the history of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so that's where we're going to start. And um, so we're, this section here, specifically about the Ark, um, is in Exodus 25. And this is the part where um, the Lord is telling how the ark is going to be constructed. He was talking to Moses. And um, so I'm going to start with Exodus 25, uh, verse 10. 
You shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubit wide, and one and a half cubit high. You are to overlay the ark with pure gold, overlay it inside and out, and you will make a gold border or a frame around its top. You'll cast four golden rings for it and attach them to the four feet, two rings on either side. You shall make carrying poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and put the poles through the rings on the side of the ark by which to carry it. These poles shall remain in the rings of the ark for they shall not be removed so that the ark itself need not be touched. By the way, notice that. (laughs) That's really important here in just a moment. You will put in the ark the testimony or the Ten Commandments which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat or cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubit wide. You'll make two cherubim of solid hammered gold at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at each end with their wings touching each other, spread upward. The faces of the cherubim are to look downward toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you will put the testimony which I will give you. There I will meet you. From above the mercy seat, for from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak intimately with you regarding every commandment that I will give you for the Israelites. So that's the instructions about the construction of the ark. If you've ever seen uh, artists' rendering of what that is, it's it's amazing, actually. And the detail, the fine detail, of course, we don't have the ark now, so this is somebody's rendering, if you will, of these instructions. But it's just an amazing thing. And, and then uh, down the road, besides the Ten Commandments, the ark also contained a golden pot that was used to contain manna from when the Lord was providing for them in the exile. It also contained the budded rod of Aaron. These are all significant symbols of the presence of God in the life of Israel. And so that's what the ark was. It was a symbol of the presence of God in the midst of Israel and and reference specific events in the history of Israel. But there was this problem. with the ark too. Because what happened was, in time, in 1 Samuel 4, there was battles going on and the Israelites decided they wanted basically to use the ark as a good luck charm. They wanted to bring the ark out and use it to make sure that they won this battle that they were gonna be in. So. Prior to this battle, the ark had been residing at the sanctuary of Shiloh, but it was brought out by the Israelites in hope of victory in the war. The Israelites suffered a significant defeat. Hophni and Phinehas, who were sons of Eli, the high priest, were killed, and the ark was captured by the Philistines. The news of the ark's capture was such a shock to Eli, the high priest, that he fell off of his chair and died fell backwards and died. And Phineas's wife died in childbirth as she heard the news, giving birth to Ichabod, whose, names, whose name means, where is the glory? Where is the ark? This was from 1 Chronicles 13, 1 through 8. So there was a problem, because now the Philistines had possession of the ark, which was the symbol of the presence of God. What they didn't know and found out was this was not a good thing for them because all kinds of disease and pestilence fell upon the Philistines as they had this ark. My computer just did something really strange. Okay, all right, won't do that. Disease and pestilence all came and after this tribulation, they decided this is too much. We can't deal with this anymore. So they decided to hook the ark up to two cows, two milk cows specifically. They placed it on a cart 
And they basically hit the cows and told them to go. And if the cart went one way, they were supposed to let it go. And if it went the other way, it meant something else. Bottom line is, these cows went directly to Israel. The Lord told them where to go is what I believe. The ark stopped at Beth Shemesh before finding a permanent home in Kiriath-Jerim, which that place, location, was about nine miles away from Jerusalem. And so it stayed for a while. David is now king. He is going through the process of being king. It's interesting that Michael was talking about the kingdom because this totally fits in. You didn't know what I was talking about tonight, right? There's the Lord again. You know, just thank you. Um, So David was feeling a need to get the ark back to Jerusalem, to the city of David. Okay? And so he told this, this is in First Chronicles 13 now. Okay? So he consulted with all of the captains. You know, they had captains of thousands and captains of hundreds with every leader. And he said to them, if it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God... Let us send word everywhere to our fellow countrymen who remain in all of the land of Israel and to the priests and Levites who are within them in their cities with pasture lands so they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us for we did not seek it during the days of Saul. Then all the assembly agreed to do so for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. So David gathered all of Israel together from Shehor of Egypt to the entrance of Hamath in the north to bring up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all of Israel went up to Bela, that is Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim, the ark which is called by his name. So, They carried the ark of the God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of of Benadab and Uzzah and Ahio, his brother, drove the cart. David and all of Israel celebrated joyfully before God with all their might, with songs, lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. I couldn't help but think during our worship time when the kids were engaged with the percussion instruments and everything else. I mean, that was quite a thing, but it's probably, well, it was nothing compared to what this celebration was. I mean, they were celebrating, it says, with all their might. And we're talking literally thousands of people. It must have really been something. Notice what it says here. They carried the ark of God on a new cart. What were the directions that the Lord gave them? It was to be carried by poles. It didn't say anything about a cart. He gave very specific, and he said those rods, the, the handles were not to be taken out because that's how the ark was going to be moved. Okay? So they, they built a new cart to bring it. As I was reading through this, it just occurred to me, the Lord was saying to me, how often has the church created a new cart, a fancy new package, new programs to deliver the ark, his presence, when all that was really needed to bring to the ark, excuse me, when all that was really needed was to bring the ark to the people, use the handles as he created it. He didn't ask them to build a new cart, but they built a new cart. As I was thinking through that, it just occurred to me, I just felt there's always a danger when we go out on our own, creating our own ideas, our own programs, our own ways of doing things. There's a danger, and in looking for new ways to present the ark. The ark is what is important. (laughs) It's not the new ways. And so often we get tied up as a body of how is it being presented. 
How can we do this in a new way? Well, we just need to present the ark. Bring the Lord's presence into their midst. So that's just a parenthesis there. Verse 9. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold instead of the ark, for the oxen that were drawing the cart nearly overturned it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he touched the ark, and there died, he died before God. David became angry because the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home with me? So David did not bring the ark with him to the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord, here's the amazing thing, the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. He was offering shelter to the presence of God, and God honored that. So three months pass, and David is sitting in Jerusalem, still feeling a strong need, desire to bring the ark to Jerusalem. So then in first, we'll skip ahead a little bit, First Chronicles 15, 1 through 3, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. So this is the tabernacle. This is what becomes the tabernacle and the purpose of it is to prepare a place for the ark. It's a physical representation of the ark of the excuse me the tabernacle of David. Notice that David prepared a place for the ark this time. He didn't just say, "Let's go get it and have a celebration." He prepared the place. Previously, the emphasis had been to triumphantly go get the ark in a magnificent procession and a new cart and a great celebration. This time, he prepared a place. He sought the Lord. And then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God except the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. No carts involved. David assembled all of Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place which he had prepared for it. And David assembled them to bring it up to that place. Then David called for Zadok, a name we are familiar with also here, and Abiathar the priests and for the Levites. And he said to them, you are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves both you and your relatives, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord of God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it as God directed the first time, the Lord our God made an angry outburst against us, for we did not seek him in accordance with the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring the ark of the Lord to Israel. The Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. So this time they were doing what the Lord told them to do. They didn't go off on their own way and create a new way to do what they were supposed to do. Then David told the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives as the singers with instruments of music, harps, lyres, and cymbals, to play loudly and to raise sounds of joy with their voices. So the singers, and here's one of those names, it's spelled H-E-M-A-N. Ray Hughes pronounced this as He-Man. <laughs> All I could think of was the, like the cartoon, <laughs> He-Man and whatever, you know. I'm going to use He-Man, I like He-Man. Asaph and Ethan were appointed to sing aloud, to sound aloud, the bronze cymbals. That was their job, to play the cymbals. <laughs> And by the way, you recognize the name Asaph, Heman. We're going to get to that here in just a moment. So David, with the elders of Israel and the captains over the thousands, 
brought the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy because God was helping the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord to do it carefully and safely, they sacrificed seven bulls and rams. Thus all of Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud-sounding cymbals, with harps and lyres. In the last verse, And then it happened that as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, David's wife, the daughter of Saul, looked down through a window, saw King David leaping and dancing in celebration, and she despised him in her heart. Saul's lineage, she could not handle the joy, the celebration that was going on with David and the return of the ark to Jerusalem. And she despised him in her heart. Um, I don't feel led to go into a lot of detail about that, but I think we're dealing with that kind of thing now. Now, in our midst, uh, with the way some people maybe look at us, the things we do, does that make sense? That it doesn't fit necessarily the mold of what some people would like to see. And so therefore, because it's a little different, um, maybe the word despise is too harsh, but certainly not sure, keep us at arm's length, oh, those guys. You understand what I'm saying? A little bit of a stigma. Travis has talked about that before. That's what we're talking about. So, what do we learn from this account of the ark? The ark is the uh, Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's presence. Israel treated it as a good luck symbol, and as a result, it was taken away from them. The process of getting it back was full of problems and peril, actually, and death. It wasn't until it was done according to God's directions that it was finally delivered to the tabernacle that David had prepared. So, what, what then is the function of the tabernacle? We've sort of dealt with what the ark was and its purpose, its importance, the, representing the presence of the Lord. But what was the actual function of the tabernacle of David? Well, this was a place that uh, Israel went to worship. It was a place of worship. The fact that it was a tabernacle meant that it was intended that it could be moved. I'm not the Old Testament scholar, and it looks like all of our Old Testament scholars are not in the room, which actually is not, probably not a bad thing for, for me right now. But anyway, I actually did call Joe and ask him something. I appreciate Joe and Trenton and their, their knowledge, and it's, it's really a blessing to me, actually, just about every time they speak, just to the depth of meaning that they bring. So I appreciate them. But um, to my knowledge, this tabernacle with the ark in it was not moved. I think it just stayed stationary in that one place. But the other meaning of tabernacle is a place where you meet together. We tabernacle there. And in this case, we tabernacle with the presence of God, with the ark of the covenant that was there. So this tabernacle was predated the temple. You know, David wanted to build the temple. We're probably fairly familiar with that story. But the Lord said, no, <laughs> you've got too much blood on your hands. And by the way, we've got to remember that David was the one that the Lord called the man after his own heart. So if you just sort of think about it, sort of logically, he would be a good candidate to build the temple, right? But the Lord said, no. You're not the one. It's going to be your son that does that. And the Lord had downloaded all the directions about the temple. I mean, just so incredibly um, precise and descriptive about what was supposed to happen. David gave that to him. David gave him all the things to build it with. And all those things went to Solomon, his son. And Solomon was the one that actually built the temple. In the meantime... The tabernacle of David was where the main worship was happening. And so 
there are basically five things that are outlined um, in First Chronicles 16 as to things that happened at the tabernacle. First of all, the priests. There's Trent. Was he there the whole time? <laughs> you were hiding. <laughs> um, the priests performed their prescribed duties. They had morning and evening uh, responsibilities and, and sacrifices that they made and prayers that they were doing that were very detailed directions given in Leviticus for them to do. So the priests had their, in fact, it says continually. This is one thing that I checked with Joseph about because when, when you say continually, I tend to think of more like the 24-7 kind of thing. Uh, his impression was that's not what it was, but it was each day at the prescribed times continually, right? As opposed to a 24-hour-a-day kind of thing, which makes sense. So that was one of the things that was happening at the Tabernacle of David. Another big thing was music. And you know, we can, we can look at this and we can say it was a big thing strictly for no other reason because of the sheer number of musicians that were involved. And it says, um, well, first of all, it says the musicians are to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, lyres for the service of the house of God. There were 4,000 musicians. The Bible is so specific that sometimes it just... It's just amazing to me. 4,000 musicians, 288 who were trained in singing to the Lord, all who were skillful. So that must mean that 3,000, some of them just weren't very skillful, right? And, and I can resonate with that as a musician because, you know, in our own setting, in, in any setting, we're going to have those who are the highly skilled ones, and those who are musicians that are doing their part to make, and playing the cymbals and, and not that there's anything wrong with percussion, let's just say that, but it's, it's all a vital part of what's going on. But the sheer magnitude of the number of musicians that were involved has to point out that they were an important part of what was going on in the tabernacle of David. Um, in 1 Chronicles 16, 9, it says, Sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all of his wonders. If you want a uh, mission statement for musicians, there you go. <laughs> That's it. Sing to him, sing praises to him, and speak of all of his wonders. I mentioned a moment ago that there were some specific um, musicians that are mentioned and what I was referring to was actually in the Psalms. Some translations, versions of the Bible leave this out, but like at the beginning of a lot of the Psalms it will say a Psalm of David. Another one you see quite frequently is a Psalm of Asaph, who's one I mentioned a moment ago. There are three main ones besides David who are mentioned and as musicians and as part of the Ray Hughes thing that I told you about, he went into great detail about these three musicians and what the meanings of their names were. And I thought it was just really actually very important. So I wanted to share this with you. So Asaph was one of the chief musicians. The meaning of his name is one that gathers and restores. A gathering restorer. He is a restorer of things that have been scattered. He brings them in, renews them, restores them. That's the meaning of Asaph. Jeduthun is another one of the three that are mentioned a lot of times in Psalms. Jeduthun was a gatekeeper. His job was to guard what comes in and goes out. Gatekeeper, by the way, is also one who is actively involved in praising God. They just make sure that the things that are coming in in the form of praise are what is supposed to be there. Keeping order, keeping things in the proper, uh, properly done 
and according to what the Lord wants. In Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 26, 12, it says, to the divisions of the gatekeepers, the chief men were given duties like their relatives to minister in the house of the Lord. So it wasn't just somebody standing there with the staff saying, yes, you can come in, and no, you can't. <laughs> they were actively ministering to the Lord, but they were the ones who had an understanding of what was to be allowed, what was proper in the worship. So he was the gatekeeper. And by the way, his relatives were gatekeepers in the temple. And then there's He-Man, He-Man, and his name means faithful. He-Man was actually the grandson of Samuel, Okay? God is, in his very nature, faithful. And that was He-Man. Faithful to all generations. So we have Asaph, one who gathers and restores. Jeduthun, a gatekeeper. And He-Man, faithful. I just felt like those three things were really important, that they are tied to the music but they also describe various aspects of what happens in worship and our purpose in worship. Our purpose in worship is to gather in people, to bring people in to the Lord's presence. Our purpose in worship is also to be a gatekeeper, make sure that we are aligned with the Lord and that the right things are coming in and the things that are not proper are kept out. And then we are being faithful to worship the Lord and praise him in all things, which I'm going to talk more about here later. So, I want to read just a little bit now, specifically a little more out of Chronicles. Um, this is Chronicles 16, 37 to 42. So David left Asaph and his relatives there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to minister before the ark continually as each day's work required. Obed-Edom and his 68 relatives, and then he goes this whole litany of all the priests and so forth and those musicians who were left there to continually minister before the Lord. One of those priests was Zadok, just by the way. Um, so He-Man... Jeduthun, Asaph were all people, musicians, who were design, designated to minister in the tabernacle of David. And Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. Now, that takes it to a whole different realm for me. Because I'm familiar with prophesying verbally, lyrically, singing with words and all that. I can't say that I've ever been involved where prophecy was happening with a lyre and a harp and cymbals. Uh, just, it's just really interesting to me as a person who writes music for instruments. And I have a concept of what those instruments, the percussion instruments and so forth, can do to change the sound of the music. But what I also know is, it not only changes the sound of the music, it changes the atmosphere. And so as I was listening to Ray Hughes, he said what would happen would be, they would be in, in worship and, and the musicians would be playing and then, um, Asaph and Heman and Juduthan, who were to prophesy with the lyre, harp, and cymbals, would hit one of these things, and it would change from one thing to another, prophetically, what was going on. It controls the atmosphere. And um, I just I thought that was fascinating and deep, actually. That, you know, the Lord created sound. He created all sound. Is it any surprise that he can use any and all sound to praise him? Not to me. Is it in our normal realm of experience? I, I won't, let's stick out normal. Is it in our realm of experience? Not much, really. 
maybe more so than we realize. Because if you have a favorite song that you listen to, almost any <coughs> style, isn't there usually some kind of percussion involved in it that helps set the mood and, and so forth? Yes, there is. So it's not that far out, but it's just not something that I had ever really considered, which I thought was very interesting. Okay, so that's the musicians. Um, so we've talked about the priests, the musicians. Another division, actually, and along those lines, was the gatekeeper. And we talked about the gatekeeper being Jeduthan and what their purpose was. But they were given duties just like their, and their relatives were to minister in the house of the Lord. And so how did they choose them? This was really interesting to me. They cast lots. <laughs> um, and that's used, that was used a lot in this time to determine who was going to do what. But they cast lots. Smaller, meaning younger, greater, older alike, in accordance with their father's households for every gate. There was a gate on the north, south, east, and west around Jerusalem. And they cast lots to see who would go where. But that was another division, just like the priests and just like the musicians were the gatekeepers. The fact that they are identified specifically says that's really important. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll, we'll come back to that, the whole gatekeeper thing. Another division was the keepers of the treasure. They were in charge of the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries of the dedicated gifts. This is in 1 Chronicles 20, 26, verse 20. They were in charge of all the treasuries of the dedicated gifts which King David and the heads of the father's households, the commanders and all these gifts had brought in and were dedicated to the Lord. From the spoils won in battles, they dedicated gifts to maintain and repair the house of the Lord. There was a whole division of people. That's what, that's what they do. They were the keepers of the treasure. And then the last one that's mentioned specifically in Chronicles 26 is what they call outside duties. These were the duties of administrators and judges. They kept order. They were sort of the governmental wing, if you will. Um, I don't know how far that went because I'm not very familiar with the actual process, but this is in Chronicles. First Chronicles is specifically listed as one of the duties that was involved with the tabernacle of David. So administrators and judges. Is not our God an orderly God? Oh, yes. <laughs> he is. Just go in and read, especially back here in, in Leviticus and all the directions that are given so precisely down to the minute detail. Um, and the, again, the uh, plans for the temple. So those divisions were the priests, the musicians, the gatekeepers, keepers of the treasure, and those with outside responsibilities. Those were all part of the tabernacle of David. Um, so, we talked about the ark and its role and its significance just a little bit. And by the way, this is all just a little bit. I feel like I'm <laughs> trying to compress into small segments things that are so large so please understand there's a lot more there, but this is what I felt like I was supposed to bring to us tonight. So what are the implications then of the tabernacle of David for today? So now we're gonna talk about, okay, so what does that mean to us? We've got sort of a thumbnail understanding of what it meant for Israel in that time. The significance of getting back the ark what the ark represented, the presence of God in the midst of Israel, the reverence with which they were to treat it, the blessing that came with it. Philistines found out the opposite of the blessing that came with it because they weren't supposed to have it. But so what about today? When, when Travis two weeks ago was talking about the tabernacle of David and how it has been sort of intertwined 
in the DNA of dwelling ministries from early days, uh, I'm here to absolutely agree with him that 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 has been the case. For me personally, not being the Old Testament scholar, it's been sort of hard to define what that meant for us as a ministry. How, how do we respond? What, what, what does that mean for us? And so as I was seeking the Lord about this, um, there's some very specific things. Let's start with some general, a general thing. Because our uh, mission statement as dwelling ministries is welcoming the presence of God to permeate every segment of society. When you talk about a tabernacle, we're talking about a dwelling place. The dwelling place of the Ark of the Covenant. The dwelling place of God's presence. Our mission statement, welcoming the presence of God to permeate every segment of society. So in a way, in an abstract way, could you not say that in a way, we are acting like the tabernacle of David, welcoming the presence of God in that instance. Where are we welcoming this presence? In our ministry, yes, that's very important. But here's where I felt like the Lord was taking this, that it's not just in our ministry. It's also on the personal level. Okay? We become tabernacles. We become places where the presence of the Lord is dwelling individually. We represent that tabernacle of David. Um, We carry with us the Ark of the Covenant inside the very presence of God everywhere we go into every segment of society. We carry that presence with us. So we are literally little tabernacles of David. And so then what does that mean? In Acts chapter 15, um, the Apostle James was talking to uh, the council, and uh, he quoted um, Amos 9, 11, and 12, which Travis, again, two weeks ago, referenced this specific thing. Okay? And so it says in Acts 15, 14 to 17, Peter has explained thoroughly that God is determined to win a people for himself among the non-Jewish nations. And the prophet's words are fulfilled from Amos 9, 11 to 12, parentheses. After these things, I will return to you and raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen into ruin. I will restore and rebuild, Asaph, what David experienced so that all of humanity will be able to encounter the Lord, including the Gentiles, whom I have called to be my very own, says the Lord. For I have made known my works from eternity. We should all be thankful for the Lord's inclusion of the Gentiles, because here we are, right? And so then some questions come to my mind. After these things, I will return to you and rise, raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen into ruin. I think there's a lot of things that we can look around in our society, and let's, let's be a little more specifically, in the church at large that has fallen into ruin. Uh, you don't have to look too far. Okay, And then take it beyond the church body at large and let's look at ourselves. There are a lot of things that we can find in our own personal tabernacles that has fallen into ruin. And the Lord says he's going to return and raise up the things that have fallen into ruin. He will restore and rebuild 
what has fallen into ruin. Amen to that. I mean, uh, yes, that's all I can say is amen. So the promise in the text, which is, I will return, is a promise of God's manifest presence among his people on the earth. Here, his manifest presence. God will fill our churches, our families, businesses, schools, and our lives with his manifest presence so much that he will become tangible to us in our five senses. See, hear, feel, touch, all those things. I believe that the Lord is currently preparing a people, not just us, but including us, that will unveil his presence to creation. In David's tabernacle, not only the priest could see the glory of God, but all of Israel. If my understanding is correct, the tabernacle of David's did not have the sides on it. You could see inside. Yes? No? He doesn't know. That's good. I, that's, that's what I read. So, regardless, the bottom line is, they knew the presence was there. The ark was a physical representation of that. I believe the eyes of the world will see his presence, which is unveiled in us. John fourteen twenty one says, Those who truly love me are those who obey my commandments. Whoever passionately loves me Listen to this. Whoever passionately loves me will be passionately loved by my Father, and I will passionately love him in return and will reveal myself to him. So what is the groundwork for, or the premise under which God reveals himself to us? Obeying and love. The house of God should be a place, and we should be a place, where we release our creativity without fear of rejection, without fear of man, without political agendas, all these things. The key to the manifestation of God's manifest presence is love. And perfect love casts out fear. Fear of man, fear of rejection, fear of fill in the blank. His perfect love. This verse promises that the Lord will manifest his presence to those who love and obey his word. We are promised that. And there is power in that presence that is perceptible to other people. Okay? This tangible manifest presence is made known in many different ways, which includes healing, deliverance, salvation, restoration, prosperity, change, blessings, creative miracles, all those things and many more. The Lord takes pleasure in revealing himself to us. How did that uh, manifest in the Old Testament? A lot of different ways. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, manna that fell from heaven, water flowing from rocks, shoes that never wore out in the exile. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. What the Lord did for the children of Israel in the wilderness, he will do for us now in the days of his manifest presence. I believe the tabernacle of David that the Lord is currently restoring in the church and is found in us is comprised of three main things. Praise and worship is one. This includes music, yes, but it goes far beyond that. And Michael alluded to this a little earlier, and in prayer time today before the service, Laura referenced this as well. Praise and worship is a lifestyle. It's not a, in our case, 45-minute segment of the service that we are doing. It's a lifestyle. In the midst of any circumstance, whether it's good or bad, We can praise and worship God. Any circumstance, no matter how good or how bad. It's a choice that we make. It's a choice. Not based upon circumstances or feelings. Feelings, emotions are highly unreliable. Okay? 
It's not that. It's based on our reality and our trust in the Lord. It's a choice that we make for praise and worship. Secondly, so one was praise and worship. Two, we're to be a people without prejudice. Now, get away from thinking what prejudice is in today's society. That's not what I'm talking about, though, as an aspect of it, okay? So in this definition of prejudice, it's an unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand or without knowledge, thought, or reason. That's just pretty broad. Without knowledge, thought, or reason. And it's any preconceived opinion or feeling either favorable or unfavorable. If we are to reach out to others for the kingdom, how can we go out with prejudice? Because we are judging people. If they don't look like us, it's a problem. If they don't act like us, it's a problem. If they're doing things that we would never do, it's a problem. But does that matter to the Lord? Absolutely not. So we have to lay aside all these preconceived notions. We have to be willing to accept people as they are because that's what God does. He accepted us where we are. How can we do any less? His grace is extended to everyone. How can we withhold that grace from others? I remember so specifically, and I don't, Travis is good at like, in 2013 on May the 3rd, and that's not me, for sure, okay? But I can remember him saying very specifically that dwelling ministries, it's gonna be messy because we're gonna see people coming to the Lord that have major issues, and it's, sometimes it's very obvious, sometimes it's not, but it's not gonna be a nice, clean little package that we can say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. no. They need the Lord's hand. They need the Lord's touch. And so we have to be able to reach out and extend the hand to these people without any kind of prejudice other than we know that God loves you and cares about you and wants you to come to him. Fact. The third thing is we have authority over all of our enemies. Tabernacle of David was established to rule over all of our enemies. We will see in these last days enemies of fear, depression, sickness, poverty, disease, and death brought under our feet. God will trample them, and he will use our feet to do that. The Lord is presently restoring this kingly anointing within the church. (laughs) Michael talked about the kingdom. A kingdom mentality is a warrior mentality. We don't often think about that. We're in a battle. We play our role. The battle belongs to the Lord. The the Lord fights the battle, but he uses us as part of that. It's a kingdom mentality we have to have. So we find out who we are in the word. And the word tells us that we are priests and kings. How many of you feel like a king? Uh, not, probably not many. Kingship is all about protection, exercising authority, reclaiming conquered territory. We are appointed and we are anointed. We are made to stand. We are assigned. We are ordained. We are equipped to function, given responsibility and given authority. Not a small thing. So the tabernacle of David represents a restored kingdom, Michael. In every kingdom, there must be a king. Jesus is not only the king of our kingdom, but also the king of all kings and lords of lords. He is the one that's in charge. He is the king forever. As priests of the Lord, we are worshipers. That's what the priest did. We are worshipers. And we've been given the power with, by God. As kings, we are warriors, and we have been given the power with man. Our priestly anointing opens up the heavens, while our kingly anointing brings heaven to earth. As priests, we move the heavens, and as kings, we move the earth. 
It's there. The church is not an end. We are not an end. Advancing the kingdom is our purpose. We have to start applying these kingdom principles to enter his kingdom. And once these principles have been applied, we have the authority to demonstrate the kingdom. It's a process of we have to see the kingdom first. We have to recognize it. We have to enter the kingdom, be part of it. And then we have to demonstrate that to the world. And that's where we go out as emissaries, as little tabernacles of David, taking the Lord's presence into every segment of society. Unfortunately, a lot of believers today are only interested in maintaining their salvation and not demonstrating it. And might I say, we're probably all guilty of that. I'm not just pointing at other people. I'm saying we tend to do that kind of thing as well. It's an easy thing to fall into. I'm just, okay, we're almost there. I didn't think I was going to have anything to say tonight. So this priestly, kingly, Davidic anointing that is presently coming, I believe, on a new breed of believers will defeat the giants of greed, wickedness of all manner, religion, and poverty. The Lord does this. This anointing will only be given to the holy seekers like David, who was a man after God's own heart. How do we become like David? By knowing the Lord. By really knowing him. By getting to know him. David was in pursuit of the heart of God and was capable of interpreting God's heart without God speaking. This is where the Lord wants us all to be, to abide so close to him, so close to him that we know his very heartbeat. It's an integral part of who we are. This is where we as Tabernacle of David representations are able to take the presence of God out into a society that desperately needs him. These are the dates of great advancement, I believe that, of God's kingdom in the earth, in which this divine order of David's tabernacle will be restored and our enemies will become our footstools. We need to pray that the Lord would arise and let his enemies be scattered and that he would allow us to partake in that and that's what he wants for us. Are we willing to do that? I pray so. And that's where I feel like I'm supposed to stop for tonight. Pretty good. Yeah. That was good. Thank you. Um, but this is part one. I know there's part two. And um, I, I can just tell you the title of part two and let you just sort of stew on this and see if the Lord says anything to you. It's called Redeeming Holiness. Redeeming Holiness. Um, but it's all tied to this first. Let's pray. Father, above all things, we long for your presence to indwell within us, to empower us. Lord, as I said there at the end, just so that we hear your heartbeat. We know what it is that you want. We are so entwined in you. Our heart is so after you that it is just part of our breathing process. Lord, show us the areas where we have fallen short. The example that we've been talking about tonight was David, and we know that he had his shortcomings for sure. But you called him even with all those shortcomings, you called him a man after my own heart. Lord, this is what we desire. This is what we long for. Show us the areas, Lord, that need to be brought under your control, that need to be redeemed, 
We long to have your presence so integrally involved in our hearts that as we go out, we disappear and people see you. We pray that you would just speak to us about these things as we go forward. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. Be blessed.